Good morning, Gary. Gary? Good morning. That didn't work. Okay. It didn't work. No. <laughs> Let's start over. Okay. Okay. We could I, didn't work. No. <laughs> Let's start over. Okay. Okay. We could get past the great exam. Okay. I need to explain one thing. I, I had dental surgery this afternoon. Uh, we were recording this at a time when the numbness, which causes me to sound muffled or or. Okay, I need to explain one thing. I, I had dental surgery this afternoon. Uh, we were recording this at a time when the numbness, which causes me to sound muffled or, or, or at, at the worst, badly diseased, that's worn off. I mean, that's fine. I, don't ha I, I have complete control of my vocal faculties. The pain is much, how much wine you can drink with, with one hydrocodone pill. <laughs> and we'll find out by the end of this podcast. I guess we're recording. <laughs> How's life in sunny Chicago, Gary? It's 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 fine. I'm I'm beginning my spring break. I have got a lot of work to do, but uh, right now I'm feeling mellow. Mellow is good. Mellow is good. Mellow is good. And how and and how is it in sunny, hot, humid, uh, inhumane? Uh, For meteorologically, Australia. Well, I have to say today is, and tomorrow are supposed to be the days where we get our break before the weather go, gets hot again. Today is the first day where it's been under 30 degrees centigrade, which is, oh, whatever it is, 80-odd or 85 degrees uh, during the day. And we get that again tomorrow, and then it gets hot again. Uh, so this is our little respite where, where everything sort of gets to calm down. Uh, I should mention that one of our one of our listeners pointed out to me that we seem to spend the first part of every podcast talking about the weather, and he didn't find that terribly interesting. So maybe we should move on to um, okay uh, some some issues here. Okay. Was... Well, we can. I mean, we can even. Do we need to cut that bit out, Gary? No, we don't need to cut it out because I'm sure there are people out there who want to hear. There. Okay. Here's here's a piece of literary trivia which people need to know. Yeah. One of one of Mark Twain's least known novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the first postmodern novels in one sense, in, in the sense of being metafictional, was called The American Claimant. Okay. Uh, the American Claimant is a novel about a, a it, it's, it simply is an adult version in many ways of The Prince and the Pauper. It's about an American okay. who finds himself having a legitimate claim to the English throne. None of which is relevant to what I'm saying. One of the things <laughs> he has in the novel, <laughs> one of the things he has in the novel, which I don't think anybody else would have thought of except Mark Twain for the next hundred years, was he has an appendix. And one of the appendixes is titled "A Note on the Weather in This Novel." Yeah, yeah. You will note this novel. I am completely tired of reading novels that describe rainstorms and London fogs mm -hmm. and Midwestern routes and that sort of thing. So, near so three paragraphs of descriptions of weather in his appendix. Ah, uh, maybe, maybe we need. It is brilliant. Maybe we need to move the front of the podcast to an appendix at the back. What do you think? He's on our podcast. That's wonderful. Yeah. We, we could possibly do that. Um, I will flag. I'm not sure how well the sound is going, but we'll, we'll, we'll push forward. Because, actually, the, the weather thing do, does actually play in as well. I mean, taking into account Mr. Twain's reservations about the, the weather, we are living now in a seasonal science fiction field, and the, season, the seasons are really beginning to hot up. It's the beginning of March. By the end of mm -hmm. March, the Hugo's uh, nominations will be closed. By, I think, middle of April, the Locus Award votes will be complete. Uh, we've had another two award uh, set of ballots released this week, both of which are intriguing for different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're worth sort of possibly talking about because not only are they sort of part of the life cycle of the year in the sense that um, Awards happen around now and then follow us through the whole year. But just because it's part of the whole thing setting up before you go off to ICFA, the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, which is the first really major kind of convention event for the year with, um, you know, being sort of science fiction spring break, as they like to describe it. So as an opener, and this is one that you pointed out to me, mm -hmm. and one which is normally probably outside both of our normal reading spheres is the, uh, the Stoker Ballad, which was just released, I think, about three or four days ago. 
Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting interesting to me because even though I make a overt attempt to read a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff here I've never heard of. Uh, same, same with me. I mean, there are some uh, people in the awards list that we both know well, like Peter Straub, obviously, yeah, and Joe yeah. Hill. Mm. Uh, and there are people who uh, we know... Uh, reasonably well, like Laird Barron is a writer I admire greatly. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about the Stoker Awards, and um, it's interesting to think about this in terms of other nominations like Nebulas, for example, is the the of awards in this is. Um, and I'm wondering if to some extent the award nomination lists when they come out are in some ways, uh, in, there's certainly outstanding works in the field. In some ways, though, I think they're a declaration of community. Um, and and I, I say that in two ways. Um, in, in terms of the Stokers, there are a lot of writers on that list that, like I say, you and I don't know, but are well known to, to horror people. Horror is a more insular field, it seems to me, than the sort of blur of science fiction and fantasy which is out there. Um, so uh, I'm thinking, I, 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 I administer uh, the um, Crawford Award, mm -hmm. which we're giving to Karen Lord this year, uh, and the Crawford Award has sometimes ventured into horror, sometimes ventured into science fiction, sometimes ventured into fantasy, sometimes mm -hmm. has been in that sort of ill-defined area of, of like, uh, Mary Rickard or, or Christopher Barzak. Um, and when I say awards are related to the establishment of a sense of community, I mean that there are a certain community. I think the Stoker Awards are, asser are asserting there is a horror community, and they they want to look within that community to, to recognize people. There are other awards that I think try to expand the community, try to say, okay, we're a fantasy award, but we're going to look at horror fiction this year. Yeah. Uh, or we're a science fiction award, and we're going to look at fantasy this year. Uh, does that make sense? I think it sort of does. I mean, certainly, I mean, okay, this is a, absolutely an external observer's comment. You know, I'm not intimately involved with the horror community i don't read a lot of horror though i've looked at um horns by joe hill that's on the ballot and i've certainly read peter mm -hmm. peter's novel a dark matter and i'm familiar with other things there you know i've read uh, haunted legends the datloma martis anthology and i've mm -hmm. seen dark faith the bro the broadest gordon anthology and the new dead the chris golden book yeah um and I've, I mean, I'm familiar with the Kirsten McDermott novel that's up for first novel. Um, I've heard of the Australian uh, anthology Macabre that's up, uh, and I'm very, f I'm familiar with the Laird Baron because, as you say, major stuff. And also, obviously, the Stephen mm -hmm. King because we're all familiar with Stephen King. But there does appear to be, you're right, community. I mean, a real defined horror community which feeds directly into this set of awards and to, to the. Uh, the annual world horror convention and all that other kind of thing. And they tend to be outside what we, you know, what you and I look at, I guess. And certainly uh, I keep, I wouldn't say I keep my distance, but I have enough mm -hmm. reading to do as you do that you, you have to draw lines. And one of the lines is for me, unfortunately, if it's horror, I don't, I, I can like not read it simply because I have the, the, the luxury of that. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things I'm, interested about it. I, I, I don't know, this is not meant to be a criticism at all, no. uh, but I look at these and I look at the World Horror Awards and the International Horror Guild and so forth, and uh, um, it seems to me the kind of uh, fluidity that you see increasingly in the Nebulas and the Crawfords and to some extent in the um, uh, Clark Awards, which we'll be getting to in a minute, that I see less fluidity there. I see more a wanting to honor our community. Yeah. And Within that community, there are uh, undoubtedly superstars. There are, and, and Peter is one of them. I mean, to be honest, I've, I've been to horror conventions with, with Peter Straub, and it's uh, the degree of, well, frank adoration that he gets there yeah. uh, is, 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 is pretty impressive uh, because he does something very well. He's, he's one of a handful of people, uh, contemporary writers, who have more or less moved horror into the mainstream. Obviously, Stephen King is the number one of those. Of course, yeah, yeah. Joe Hill, I mean, Joe Hill, who got a Crawford Award a couple of years ago, is another one. But there's also a sense that there's a lot of stuff going on within horror, which is just horror, which is yeah. not trying to be fantasy. It's not trying to be science fiction. Uh, it's not trying to be thrillers. Uh, and I think to some extent, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, 
I think they have a real genre. I guess my sense is they're not having the genre identity crisis that you seem to be seeing in science fiction slash fantasy slash magic realism slash interstitial slash whatever <laughs> other term you want to add to it. Or they're not evolving. Um, well, I, I couldn't say that without reading... Me either, yeah. More of contemporary than... Um, I, I know that there have been efforts. I know uh, Peter Straub did an anthology a couple of years ago called Poe's Children, sure. which was an attempt to re redefine horror in more purely literary directions. Uh, the only anthologist uh, that I can think of that seems to easily cross between horror and fantasy is probably Ellen Datlow. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Uh, um. Yes. Well, I don't know that I've got that much to add. I think it's an interesting list, and I wish all of the, the nominees well. There is another ballot which came out this week. Yes, and we should I'm, look at that. And I'm probably... It speaks more to my direct interests than the others. I think this is the 10th anniversary that the Arthur C. Clarke Award has been, uh, nom you know, has been presented. And the administrators have just announced the, the ballot for that. And it's a, it's a very interesting ballot. It, there's about six novels on the list. Uh, Zoo City by Lauren Bukes, The Dervish House by Ian MacDonald, Monsters of Men by Patrick Ness, Generosity by Richard Powers, Declare by Tim Powers, and Lightborn by uh, Tricia Sullivan. Now, these are what, um, six books from six different publishers, um, four men, two women, five standalone books, one the final book in a trilogy, uh, one nominally YA, I believe. It's, it's a very international list. It's a very varied list. And I confess to you now, I've only read two of them. I've read, I've not read Monsters, I've not read the Patrick Ness novel Monsters of Men, and I've not read uh, Trisha Sullivan's Lightborn. Uh, the others I've read, and I guess one of the things that's interesting about the, the Clark Award, first of all, it's the most, probably of all the awards of the year, it's the most focused. Yeah, it is a novel. Period. That's all it is. It's not. It's not a, a whole bunch of categories. More so, it's a novel. It's a science fiction novel, right? It's a science fiction novel. It's. It's. it's it was meant originally. I understand to honor. It was, it was originally sponsored by Arthur C. Clarke. Yes, up until uh, this year, uh, I think. Yeah. And the other condition of it is a novel first published in the UK last year. Yes. Which. Like a ten-year-old Tim Powers novel showing up on the list. Yes, it is. I must say, I think that's what I've seen the most immediate comment on. I think there's been a lot of comment about the variety of the list, which has been commended. But um, I mean, I, I have to say, I find it very surreal almost because I was on the World Fantasy Award jury that presented the World Fantasy Award to declare Tim Powers for declare back in 2001. So for, in fact, an 11-year-old book. I think it was actually a 2000 oh, yeah, publication right. yeah. for an 11 year old book to be up again. I mean, I understand completely the mechanism for it. I'm not critical of it. Uh, it's just that Corvus who, who, uh, signed a deal with Tim. It must be 2009 uh, for a bunch of his older titles and for his new forthcoming book, the one that's due out, I guess, later this year, early next. Uh, and Declare was swept up in that. And to my great surprise, it had never had a British edition. I'd always assumed that it had. Um, there are real that astonished me. I thought, mm. how could this? Well, I had a conversation with Tim about a oh, less no, last August, I guess. Mm. Um, and it was a we were at a party and we were just I don't know somehow the conversation came up as to which is Tim's best novel, as a novel, uh, using traditional novelistic things. And I I and, and, and Tim was saying, don't you don't, you don't have to say anything. And I said, no, I think I have any problem. I think your best novel as a novel mm. is Declare. Yeah. And he thought for a minute, and he said, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, so I had assumed that Declare, especially since Declare deals with uh, British intelligence scandals, I mean, it, it deals with the whole Profumo affair and so forth, um, and, and, and indirectly at least, that that would have been, of all, all of his novels, the one that would have been immediately picked up in the UK. So I was actually shocked more to find out in public. Yeah, but see, that, that touches on a really interesting thing, you see, Gary. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. Tim Powers is, of course, in the, in, in the case of Declare, he's a American writer telling a story involving British characters set in Britain. 
And that can be a very uh, controversial thing, I think, both with readers and with publishers. I know that, well, I think I've heard a rumor and I may be wrong, so, you know, let me know if I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure that Connie Willis's uh, new pair of books, uh, Blackout and All Clear, are not going to get British editions, pretty much for this reason. Um, I, um, yeah, I, she's had difficulty with Britain because yeah. of the, exactly what you say. There is a sense of um, Americans. I, 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 w without going into too much detail, I know from her that there is a negotiation going on right now. Okay. Well, um, I also know that um, when we convened our World Fantasy Award panel in 2001, in the first half of 2001, one of the jurors who shall remain unnamed uh, hated this book, hated Pat DeClaire with a great and deep passion. And she hated it for pretty much this reason. You know, it got things wrong. It didn't portray the part of Britain correctly. Things which, say, for to me, you know, uh, an Australian uh, sort of born in 1964 reading it in 2001 were irrelevant because, you know, frankly, Britain in 1948 or something is as much of a fantasy land as Narnia is, really. I've no idea what it was really like. Um, right. So it doesn't really matter for the purposes of the book, but it has a real impact. And I think that, that obviously to stop, you know, slowed Declare down in terms of becoming involved. I'm fascinated that they've considered it to be science fiction, though. That's a good. That's a that's a good point. Yeah, but again, the question is, um, how much is the Arthur C. Clarke Award really a science fiction award? Not knowing monsters of. Of yeah. men. I don't know sure. whether that's science fiction. Well, or let not. me let me throw an, a thought to you that sits with this. Right. Uh, how about this? Mm -hmm. Declare would not have been nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2001, and I think the Clark the Clarke Award existed then, because it wasn't science fiction enough. But it's science fiction enough in 2011. I believe so. I think you probably are right. Yeah. You know, because I did have a conversation. Uh, just as a parenthesis to our earlier discussion, I had a. Uh, a conversation with a very well-known British critic. And I know people complain that we sometimes are being coy on these, but I, th th there, there are things where you just want to respect people's own privacy without yeah, having their permission to use their names. And, uh, and, and the concern of this critic was that there was a lot of information, specifically in Connie Willis's novels about Blackout, uh, about the location and, uh, and amount of damage of, uh, of, of uh, German rockets during the Blitz, and at the beginning of the novel, there was a sense that they didn't know this. Mm. Well, it turns out the fact they do know this is a crucial element in the novel, but you have to get halfway through the first novel. Yeah. So there's, there, there was a reaction on this person's part that I can't believe she hasn't done this research because I've got all the books on my shelf that says, and it turns out it becomes very, very evident later in the novel that she hadn't. I think what's partly going on there is a suspicion that Americans trying to research something in uh, in England in 1942 and 1943 uh, aren't doing as good a job. The point that you're making, I think, is that for most of us alive today, uh, you're absolutely right. Britain in 1948 or Britain in 1942 is as remote from currently living Brits as it is from currently living Americans. We find out about it from talking to people who were there, from reading stuff and yeah. so forth and so on. Um, there was a considerable resistance to Connie Willis's novel to, to say nothing of the dog. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I, because, again, it was uh, a, a misrepresentation, to be honest, Yeah. of what lost life, the days of Jerome K. Jerome. But, but, again, once you get through the novel, you begin to realize why it's done that particular way. Of course. I've had conversations with Cecilia Holland, the historical novelist, about she actually has a uh, – uh, she's some resistance um, on the basis of the fact that she's not British. Yeah, uh, yeah. And she is one of the most meticulous researchers I've ever mm. met among Yeah. Oh, no, I, I can believe that there would be that little bit of kickback because it's – you know, th um, there's a protective and, kind and, of thing and, involved. But, but to be the same thing, I, I, I'm not picking on British readers no, because no. I, I've seen American science fiction critics and readers complain about J.G. Uh, Ballard's Hello America. Sure. For the same reason. Yeah, yeah. I've seen complaints of misrepresentations of America. And one one of the things I want to say to both those American readers who don't like Brits invading our territory <laughs> or, uh, mm -hmm. is it's, it's fiction. I mean, it's just the nature of fiction is that yeah. you invent a world and try to make it convincing. I, I would say as well, I mean, is historical accuracy about, say, the Blitz or about the events that happened in Declare important? Absolutely. But I think it's important in a, a reference work about history 
in a novel like Declare, which is a, frankly, runaway work of, well, to my mind, fantasy, but certainly, yep. I mean, this is not a realistic text at all. And so to become upset about the details um, becomes uh, is a bit puzzling to me. What I understand, though, and this, w I don't, this is not a problem with the book, but would be mm. a legitimate complaint, is if the way in which anything is portrayed within the novel is inconsistent in terms of the novel itself. You know, if uh, Powers were unable, though he is, but if he were unable to maintain the requisite consistency of his world, then I think readers would have a very legitimate complaint. The fact I that suspect, yeah, I, 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 I don't know this from any experience. If you go back to Powers' first major novel, the first one that anybody knew was, was The Drawing of the Dark, which deals with the sure. siege of Vienna. And I suspect that had you talked to Austrian readers, you would have found things to object to in that. Mm. Uh, but the fact is, he's using that in a particular way. Um, there's a point at which you have to give readers, you have to give writers, you're absolutely right, the right to create their version of that world. Uh, mm. uh, it's interesting. And one of the things that I noticed also, get back to the Clark Awards, um, one of the judges this year is John Courtney Grimwood, yes. who's a writer I admire greatly. Yep. Uh, and, and, and John's latest novel, his the new series he's beginning uh, is set in, in Venice. Yep. And, and I have no patients who will take, take, take exception to what he says there. Um, just yeah. like I believe that there were Venetians who took – well, okay, we could do a whole sub subcategory <laughs> of Venetian science fiction fans. Well, we probably could. But Stan actually. Robinson wrote a novel called Venice Drowned, and, and people were saying, well, I, I heard somebody in Europe at least say, well, that's not what Venice is really like. <laughs> well, for the reader, you know, you're creating this world. Uh, That's true. You know, if you read, uh, and this is true of realistic fiction as well as science fiction, if you read The Catcher in the Rye uh, by J.D. Salinger, uh, this is a 1948 or 1949. I have no idea if it's true or not. Uh, but in the novel, it's I believe the novel, and that's all the writer's responsibility is. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say that you can see some of this in one of the other Clark-nominated books, and one which I admire a great deal, and obviously because of, it's the other one I've read, uh, Ian MacDonald's The Dervish House. I knew you were going to say that. Which I, got, I wanted which, the same thing. Which is MacDonald's 14th novel, and I have no idea how accurate mm. it is to its setting. I mean, it's set in the near future, and you, you would argue, actually, that, I mean, to my mind, a book like Dervish House almost has more obligation to be accurate than a book like Declare. Declare is such a uh, departure from reality, whereas the mm -hmm. Dervish House is deliberately a near future, for, not forecast, but sort of forward imagining. And then he does pl play a little bit. And someone actually pointed out an interesting thing about it, that uh, it's a really sort of fast-paced, cut-up kind of a, a book. It's not the kind of book that, sort of book that you sink into at all. And I do wonder if that's a deliberate attempt by MacDonald, not only to create a story, but also to create the kind of feeling that I think a Westerner would experience going to a city, a city like that in 30 years' time or whatever it is, um, and find it somewhat alienating, you know? I think one of the, yeah, one of the things he's doing in that novel, and I, I noticed this, I've noticed this in the, if that's part of a trilogy, it's part of a, it certainly is part of a self-conscious series on MacDonald's part. Yeah. I remember uh, talking to him about it because he's he's dealing with what he does not like to call third world countries. He likes to call no. developing economies. Yes. Um, but in, in, in each one of those, starting with uh, River of Gods and then going to Brazil, each one of them moves closer and closer to the present. Yeah. Um, and each one of them constricts its narrative more and more so that essentially by the time you get to Dervish House, you're getting a very uh, condensed, I think, I think the action of the novel is about a week. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. In, in an Istanbul, which is not more than, you're right, 30 years removed. So to some extent, it's it's it might be reasonable for a Turkish reader to say, well, wait a minute, Istanbul can't possibly become that the next 30 years. Uh -huh. um, it's equally possible for a Turkish reader to say Istanbul is already is already there. Yeah, uh, sure. But at the same time, here's the interesting thing. Uh, uh, the um, last Scott Westerfeld novel, yeah. Behemoth, is largely set in the same city. A hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, huh. Do you have do you have more leeway with that? I mean, and, and Scott basically is creating an alternate scenario for World War One. Yes. Uh, and 
and and and he's seen. I, I have no idea how his books do in Europe. If they sell in Europe, if there's any response to them in Europe at all. I don't know. But he's creating essentially a fantasy version of uh, uh, European Euro Asian politics. Yeah. And as little as I know about that period, he convinced me that it makes a lot of sense. Uh, yes. It makes a lot of sense in terms of his narrative. Yes. And I, I think it does. I mean, I've read the first novel in the series. I haven't read uh, Behemoth yet, but um, I, that was Behemoth. my feeling of it. Behemoth is the second. There's a Leviathan, Behemoth, and then Gargantuan, maybe, I think, is the third one. I think. I think something like that. But yeah. uh, but, uh, but Constantinople slash Istanbul is very much at the center of Behemoth in the way it uh, yeah. it, it wasn't of the, at the center of Leviathan. I wonder how uh, you know other writers who have... Uh, set novels in England or let's, let's let's take an example let's take um, uh, Bruce Sterling and uh, and Bill Gibson's The Difference Engine yeah. which is a Victorian novel um, yeah. Jim Blaylock uh, has written Victorian novels I really don't know what the British response to those has been I don't think I've ever no. talked to anybody no I'm not sure that I do either let me drag us back for a second, though, back to our short, the shortlist here because we've talked a little bit about the Dervish yeah, House the and now you've read more widely than I have What's your impression of, of of the rest of the list? Well, it's 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 an interesting list in that you have first of all with Lauren Bukes you have a South Africa novel mm. uh, with Tim Powers obviously you have with Tim Powers and Richard uh, Powers uh, you have American novels with pa with Richard Powers you have uh, essentially an American mainstream novelist who's never been really recognized by this field at all. Mm -hmm. um, but he's done a lot of very interesting, very, um, when I say literature sense, he's, he, he, he writes enjoyable novels, going back to Galatea yeah. 2.2 and so forth and so on. Um, what strikes me as interesting about the list, not knowing about Patrick Ness or, uh, well, Tricia Sullivan's an American writer. She also. is indeed, living in the UK, but, but, an, but an American. Living yes. in the UK, but essentially you have one British writer on this list. Who's actually Irish. Who's actually... Irish, for that matter, yeah. Yes. I think, okay, if I'm not mistaken, Ian MacDonald was a, as it was born in England and grew up in yeah. northern England, but essentially, yeah. And lives uh, not far from where I was born. Uh, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have a, a list which is, um, I would think, in terms of national identity. Now, keeping keeping in mind that this list is not based on British writer; it's based on books published in Britain. Yes. Uh, Ian McDonald is the is the hometown favorite in that. Yeah. In one sense, and in, a, in another sense, okay, uh, the Lauren Bukes novel is interesting partly because, uh, again, it's a novel which I think was published a year or maybe two years earlier in um, South Africa. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 yet is. Uh, is, is is a very good novel. I mean, it's uh, I, have, I have no problems with it. Um, so, in fact, uh, the only books on this list that are 2010 books are the McDonald, the Ness, and the Sullivan. That's interesting. I believe that's true. I yeah. believe that's true. Yeah. Huh. Um, and uh, and also, it's again of the people who I know who are the judges. I have a great deal of respect for mm -hmm. John Courtney Grimwood. I've met Martin Lewis. I believe. And I don't know. Well, Liz Williams, I know of her. I don't think I've met her. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so you have you have a smart list of, of people there. And yeah, yeah. Uh, when you get lists like that, uh, one of the things that uh, sort of comes to mind parenthetically, the other thing that was announced this week were the world fantasy judges for next year. Yes. Yes. And you get a list of people who are really smart. And uh, and, and when I talk to about John Grinwood, it's not only his fiction. Yeah. But the fact that he's he's a, he's a reviewer. He's a regular yeah. reviewer. He knows a lot of stuff. Yes, and I tend to think that you know if they pick out a book I've never heard of, uh, like Monsters of Men, I am curious enough about that book that I respect their judgment and I think they know what they're doing. I'd, I want to read it. Yeah, well, certainly they've been raving about the trilogy that Monsters of Men concludes, uh, and I, I confess I've been buying the book. So this is what the Knife of Never Letting Go and the Ask and the Answer, which are right. the predecessors of, of that, um, and I, I've sort of been very interested in it. So I'm not. I'm sort of not surprised to see that it actually kind of makes it has has made it onto the uh, onto the ballot. It's interesting that it's the only YA book there, and I don't know whether it's the only YA uh, book actually nominated for the Clark or not. I I I don't know that either. I remember I, I know the knife of letting 
uh, Knife of Never Letting Go was a finalist for the Crawford Award mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Yeah. And we were very impressed by that. And, yeah. uh, and we, it was one of those situations where you always wonder about, which is, I think, a problem for any awards committee. What do you do about a trilogy? Um, oh, I know. That's always been a problem. You have a first novel, and I think really one of the reasons, uh, I, I don't remember who won the Crawford Award that year. It may have been Daryl Gregory. Yeah. Well, you've got the first novel of a trilogy, which is clearly not complete, and you don't really want to make a judgment on that. Uh, if you have the third novel of a trilogy, then you look at the novel, but you also look at whether the trilogy itself was a success. Yes, and, yes. Uh, it's it's very difficult, and and, and there are, uh, we actually had a um, uh, an issue like that with the World Fantasy Awards this past year. Yeah. Where you have a really really good writer uh, who has written a series of novels, and at the end of the series, you realize this is a monumental achievement, but the novel itself that ends the series may not have been the best novel yeah, of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, very true. I'm just playing around for a second because and I don't, I don't mean to kind of get too lost, but have you noticed what's missing? I've Exercise for in, the student. Exercise in terms of novels? Yeah, what's missing? Well, well, certainly certainly the Hanu Rayanemi novel is not there, and that was published in the UK last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what else? Maybe, maybe uh, well, unless I'm mistaken, and uh, I think it, yeah, it was submitted. Uh, the Wind Up Girl. Really? And that was first published in the UK last year. It was indeed. Oh my goodness! And was submitted. It's on. It's on the list of books that were submitted for the for the Clark, just as Kraken was, in fact, and Zero History. Oh, that's oh, this is very interesting. No, I had not thought about that. But part of part of what confuses me about the Clark Award is that condition that it having been published for the first time in the UK in that year, and it's difficult for me to keep track of that. Sure. And it's it, 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 even with my friends in the UK, it's difficult for me to keep track of that because the friends I have in the UK get the American versions of the novels sure, anyway. Sure. Let, let uh, me just so run yeah. down. Let me run down a couple of books. Okay. Uh, and just, 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 just so that you can, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but very quickly, books published in 2010 that were submitted for the award didn't make uh-huh. the ballot. Okay. Uh, Finch by Jeff Vandermeer. How to Live Safely in a Science mm-hmm. Fictional Universe by Charles Yu. Probably the uh, hot YA, you're getting a little bit close to your mic, uh, hot YA title for the year. New Model Army by Adam uh, Roberts, which has been widely talked about as his best right. novel. Terminal World by Al Reynolds, The Quantum Thief by Hanu Ryanyemi, The Silent Land by Graham Joyce, Zendegi by Greg Egan, uh, For the Wind by Corey Doctorow, Surface Detail by Ian Banks, Fuller Memorandum by Charlie Strauss, Restoration Game by Ken McLeod, The Wind-Up Girl as previously mentioned, Uh, Zero History by Bill Gibson, Um, and yeah. You, and you suddenly go, well, hang on, those are half the books we're talking about making up the ballots for the rest of the year. And quite interestingly, I'm not saying in any way in error, but quite mm-hmm. interestingly, not on the Clark ballot. How interesting is that? It's interesting. Well, one of the things I think is inevitable with an award like the Clark Award mm-hmm. is that as long as Clark was alive, there was a sense of honoring him and his notion of science fiction or his version of science fiction. Yeah, I think that uh, inevitably that begins to drift. Yeah, it begins to drift when he's no longer. Uh, and, and actually, if I recall the earlier Clark Awards, there were a couple of Clark Awards that clearly were not in the Clarkian camp in terms sure, of kinds sure. of science fiction. Yeah. But now I think what happens with the Clark Award is you have a completely open field, and it's an open field which is very much in the yeah. purview of the judges. Of course. And it, uh, uh, the, the thing, I, I guess the, of, the, of the list you've read, I mean, you mentioned Ken McLeod, um, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's surprising. Uh, there's a sense of... Uh, uh, I, I were a Clark Awards judge, and if I were a British citizen or a British writer, and I were looking at, let's say, we had to decide whether to put Ken McLeod or Cory Doctorow on the ballot, uh-huh. and you're essentially honoring... British published science fiction, why would you tend to focus on American writers? Even if they're uh, London residents? Well, even if they're London residents, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, let's, let's face it. I mean, Bruce could get uh, what? Where does Bruce Sterling live now, anyway? Somewhere in uh, Eastern Europe. Exactly. Zagreb, I, mean, I uh, think. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he could be getting, uh, should he be getting, you know, Romanian or Hungarian or Yugoslavian awards because he happens to live there? I don't think that's really the issue. 
No. I really think the Clark Awards were intended, as I understand the original uh, intent, and I'm sure some of our listeners will correct me on this, uh, was something that Arthur C. Clark himself wanted to sponsor because he saw uh, an important uh, tradition in British science fiction, of which he was a major part, yeah. uh, possibly not being sufficiently recognized by the American-dominated Hugo Awards. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to me to perfectly to be perfectly reasonable. It's also perfectly reasonable to not exclude American or South African writers uh, from the ballot because yeah. now you're, in other words, it's it's shifted from a kind of uh, nationalistic award to a publishing award. Yeah. Uh, that we we want to recognize uh, books that were published in in the UK, and that seems to me to be a, a an entirely reasonable and defensible uh, purpose for the award. And I'm not sure that the current list necessarily recognizes. You know, what strikes me as odd on the current list is the Richard Powers novel, Generosity, which I did read. Yeah. It's a very mainstream novel. It's very interesting. It deals with the kinds of concerns. It deals with the kind of happiness gene, whether yeah. there is one or not. Um, it deals with it in the same way that Powers has approached his earlier uh, novels about artificial intelligence. Very character-based, very mainstream-based. It's a good novel. Yeah. I have no problems with it. Uh, what it's interesting to me about it is that that's a kind of novel that does reflect the kind of very speculative idea that Clark himself was attracted to. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Clark would not have written a novel on it, but Clark absolutely would have written a Tales of the White Heart story on that theme. Sure, sure. So let me ask you as well, um, since I think you said you've read it, what was your feeling on the Tricia Sullivan book? No, I've not read it. Oh, sorry, that's, that's one you haven't read. Okay. Well, I mean, part, part of me, when I pointed out the thing about Wind Up Girl, I have to say I was cheating a little bit because I zipped over to Locus Online and I had a look at our colleague Graham Slate's comments about um, the, the list, where he was saying uh -huh. he would have put the Wind Up Girl on the list where he, uh, a judge, and saying that his pick to win out of this group from all the books he'd read was The Dervish House. I find it, because I've only read The Dervish House and Declare, because I love both books, I'm kind of sort of conflicted. I, I guess I hope uh, Dervish House wins, but I need to read some of the others. And that's, I have to say, in, in many ways, this is the best kind of shortlist the field can produce, I think. I think this is what's fascinating about it, is that this, this is a list that doesn't, that's uncompromising. It's basically saying, we are looking at a novel. And that's yeah. it. We're not looking at first novels. We're not looking at science. I mean, not to criticize the Locust List, but let's face it. The Locust List has a science fiction novel, has a fantasy <laughs> novel, has a first novel. Uh, we can pretty much spread the wealth on that list. Um, <laughs> we're a bit I of the grand we do. Yeah, yeah, but there's something really astringent about the, uh, the Clark Award list. Uh, my feeling of the novels I've read is that I really hope the Dervish House wins. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and there are all kinds of reasons for that other than Comparing one novel to another, I mean, sure. and, and we've talked about this before, comparing the Dervish House to uh, to Zoo City or Generosity or Declare is absurd. They're not even yeah. trying to do the same no. sorts of things. No, no. The Dervish House represents a major, major writer sure. uh, be, reaching his maturity. I mean, yeah. in, in, in a sense, uh, I, I can you can look at the Dervish House as having... Uh, is the perfection of what he's been trying to do in both Brazil and River of God. Sure, sure. For that, some of yeah. the sort of main uh, far future. You've become quite quiet. Exactly. Uh, the Dervish House is a very, very tightly arranged, well-organized yeah, yeah. novel. Uh, and Lauren Bukes' Zoo City was her first novel, her second novel. Inter interesting uh, footnote. Uh, Lauren Bukes' second novel is was, was on the shortlist for the uh, Crawford Award because... Zoo City is clearly fantasy, and sure, the second sure. novel, is, Zoo City is clearly science fiction. Rather, yes. the second novel is clearly fantasy. Yeah, uh, but still, um, I will I say that, that there's another comparable award to this one, mm -hmm. uh, and the obvious, you know, you know, complimentary award has to be the Campbell Award, not the Campbell Memorial Award, but the Campbell Award. The Campbell Award, you're right. Which uh, is the American direct Campbell, uh, sorry, American equivalent. And which went to what book in 2010? I do not know. Oh, The Wind-Up Girl. Of course. <laughs> uh, hmm. 
Now, of course, it, it, it actually was 2010 and in 2010, and they've not announced a 2011 shortlist, which will be the corollary of the Clark shortlist. Right. But interesting that, you know, the book which was highlighted as one of the ones that is not on, you know, sort of the, the Clark list is the one that won the, the uh, Campbell. And I will say part of me wonders, and I'm not sure, part of me wonders if the reason the Clark, uh, if the, that the wind-up girl's not on the Clark Award is actually a bit of a backlash. Well, this is one of the things that happens when you have uh, an award which is, for one reason or another, delayed for a year or two. Sure. Uh, I, I suspect that among nominators, yeah, I, I, I remember when the nominations for the Clark Awards opened. And by that time, the wind-up girl had won so many awards that people, I think you're right, were, I don't know if it's a backlash, I think it's a it's more exhaustion. It's like, yeah. okay, this novel has received recognition. Uh, and... Um, it, it, it doesn't really need any more. Uh, th there may be something to that. I don't know. Uh, who, uh, see, The Wind-Up Girl was published in... Not in UK. Who published year. it in the UK? Corvus. Who published Orbit. Orbit okay. published it. Orbit. Okay. So, yes. Now, there is, since we're talking about awards, I mean, I, I'm not going to really sort of say what I would like to win the Clark Award because I feel I need to go off and read four other books to have even a remotely valid opinion. I have to say, I would be delighted to see either of the two books I have read win. And would be right. pleased to see any of the books win, but I think it's a a, a great um, a, a great shortlist. I also wanted to say earlier when we were talking about the Stokers, you're saying that one of the things that awards do is they define a sense of community, and there is I an award, there is an award that uh, that I've seen that really in, in an interesting way defined community, and it happened on well from for me Monday morning, uh, and for you Sunday evening at the Kodak Theater in Hollywood when Sean Tan oh, won absolutely. the Oscar for Best Animated Short Feature for his film the, the Lost Thing. And it was fascinating how that, and I say congratulations again and well done, Sean, um, how that defined community, how suddenly all the people who kind of claimed, owned, knew, uh, were aware of Sean defined themselves as part of his community when that uh, award came out. What was it was announced? I gained more credibility among my kids <laughs> and grandkids that night, I mean, because uh, I, I wasn't watching the, the awards with them. But but Sean, who was who was Sean? I mean, in the first place, people who met Sean are always sort of taken aback by his Asian appearance and his Australian accent, <laughs> um, and his his absolute graciousness. I mean, he's one of the most gracious people I know. Mm -hmm. um, I should say, especially among artists, because. Artists are not always as articulate as he is. Um, but yeah, absolutely, that was a sense that it was not just Sean Tan winning for a fantasy, because fantasies have won lots oh, yeah. of awards. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, I mean, you go back to Lord of the Rings, which everybody, uh, which nobody associates with anybody that we know. But I, I, I did have that motion of uh, that, that, that sense that night. I was watching the Academy Awards live. And thinking, I've talked to that guy at length. I know him. I recognize him. This is cool. Yep. And um, he absolutely is. As I'm trying to think. Uh, I think I may have uh, tweeted about it that night. Has anybody else who is recognizably in our community, in the sense that he has been to world fantasy conventions, has been to, uh, I'm sure he's been to many Australian conventions, people that we've talked to, has anybody like that won an award? Even Neil Gaiman last year when he was. Mm. At the Academy Awards for Coraline, he hadn't written the movie, he hadn't directed the movie. He was there because he was the author of the source text. Yes, this was this was Sean's movie. I mean, he made that movie and he got an Oscar for it. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think you can underestimate as well directly how much that that is true. I and mean, if you consider that he wrote the source text, he wrote the screenplay, mm -hmm. he co-directed the film. Uh, he was one of the only three people working on the animation for the film, so he directly drew or designed or i mean he designed every single thing in that film it was more than anything else i mean if you're, you know, you know how egotistically directors will put at the you know the, the beginning of a, of a title you're know, like sean tan's the lost thing it really is sean tan's the lost thing and you can see that the to, to my mind the award really was a um really was a recognition of his vision and his craft and his skill and all those sort of things. And it's, it's been, I mean, Absolutely. Been, I've been fascinated to see how it's been uh, responded to. Everybody owns Sean. 
you know, local newspapers suddenly here in Australia referring to, you know, former local resident and his, his, you know, his university is referring to him as sort of their student. His high school is referring to him that way. Everybody owns a little slice. I mean, uh, within our community, no doubt he's Hugo and World Fantasy Award winner, Sean Tan, who's gone on to win the Oscar and, you know, obviously, yeah. And, and 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 as 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 uh, you know better than I do, he was the art director of Idolon. He was indeed our art editor. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's it's hard hard not to sort of think. I mean, it's it's, it's really the, the part that's surreal to me is I remember meeting Sean. This this is now me as officially designated friend of Sean Tan. We, we're going to get a little bad. Oh, later. yeah. But I remember the first time I met him, and he would have been twenty or twenty one years old, very um, shy of demeanor. And came across the kind of person you almost had to work to have a conversation with. The once you did was really interesting, because he was looking around for work to do at the time. And I remember that. I I now remember meeting him. The first time I met him was in uh, the World Fantasy Convention in Saratoga Springs. Mm. Uh, and I remember that very well because he and I both won awards that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was absolutely delightful. But but the thing that strikes me about the way you know somebody who's part of the community is that he seems to know a lot of the same things you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd read a lot. He was very literate in the field and so forth. And I think the crucial thing that you mentioned is from beginning to end, this was his vision. It was his book. It was oh, his yeah. design. It was his story and so forth and so on. And I remember talking to, like I say, I remember talking to Neil uh, Gaiman about this. That uh, and and basically Henry Selleck's version of Coraline was not Neil's version. No. Uh, he he had visualized the story in a brilliant way, but not in the way Neil had visualized it. In the sense of somebody carrying an idea all the way through, the only thing I could think of as a potential alternate universe Oscar history would be if Arthur C. Clarke had won an Oscar for uh, 2001. Yes. Uh, which was not even nominated, as a matter of fact, now that I think about it. You know the strangest uh, yeah. award that he's won, for my money? L. Ron Hubbard oh. Illustrators of the Future. Really? Yes. In 1992. Was he part of that? He was the first Australian to win the L. Ron Hubbard Illustrators of the Future. Won it in 1992. And he went to that bizarre he did. ceremony. He met Charles happened. there. Yep, Charles uh, mentioned it because... I did not know this. This is a great story. He'd also entered to be the writers of the future thing, but he wasn't a finalist, but they let him sit in on the workshop. Mm-hmm. Um... And then he went on, I mean, he's won lots of local Australian awards, won uh, quite prestigious Children's Book Council awards here um, before going on. I mean, it's now, what, 11 years since he won his first Spectrum Award? Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, sort of around about 2000, in fact, I remember 2001 when he won his first international award in the field, which was the World Fantasy Award, which um, was, in fact, the year that I was judge. And I remember him sat turning to me and saying, I said, you yeah, won the World Fantasy Award. He said, oh, is that good? And I'm going like, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, and what was interesting, by the time we got to 2007, which is when you met him, he'd really become a mm. part of the community um, in his own mind as well. He said, you know, he really felt comfortable within it and what, what and, and felt part of it, that like he belonged in it and everything else. And what was interesting when it was the whole thing around the Oscar is that he still talks about in terms of doing exactly the same kind of work. What you saw him do was win the Oscar for his side project because he's a book illustrator and he's going to go back to doing book illustration and everything else. I mean, I think it's a little bit intimidating in some ways that his side project won the most prestigious award in the field that, 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 that that he had, that you could have won. But, um, certainly, um, yeah, it's just fascinating. It really is. Well, the anyway. arrival was it the arrival that won the World Fantasy Award. Uh, it did as well. Yes, it's one of his three. I think he's won two yeah. or three of them. Um, three. Because the arrival was uh, well. The thing that uh, struck me about the arrival, I remember there was a discussion at the time in in one award ceremony or another as to whether this should be up for the best short story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's it struck me as well. Yeah, it's 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 a well thought out story, whether or not there are words in it. Yes. And it raised a whole set of interesting discussions I remember having with people that year. But the, the, my, my, rec, my, my recollection of that uh, long weekend with Sean uh, was that he was intensely humane. I know he, uh, our friend Amelia Beamer and, and, and he made 
close friendships that that weekend. I don't know if they've been in touch since then, mm. but there was a sense of which, you know, from from a kind of uh, emotional affective point of view, he felt part of this world yeah. more than he felt part of the either the children's book world or the uh, I assume the Hollywood world. Yeah, uh, and I was just absolutely uh, completely impressed with that. Yes, in the way that I've seldom been. Uh, I remember meeting Chuck Lorre once. He was at the Chuck Lorre, I think, was a guest at the um, Nebula Awards a couple of years ago. It, 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 it just created the Big Bang Theory at that. Oh yeah, yeah. He's been in the news a huge amount now because uh, because Charlie Sheen attacking him uh, in all kinds of vague, vaguely anti-Semitic ways, and it became very clear that he was a Stone fan. He wanted to meet Haldeman and people like that. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and Sean wasn't quite like that, but Sean was clearly somebody who knew our field. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and really loved it and appreciated it and, and, and sort of broken out of it. Well, if you consider one of the things he did quite deliberately, I mean, I'm, when I met him, as I say, for the first time, he was literally looking for work as a, you know, work as, a, as an illustrator in sort of science fiction magazines. He did that here for a number of years. And when he became Eidolon's mm-hmm. art illustrator, or art editor, um, he did most of the actual illustration, and it was a deliberate workshop thing that he was doing. You know, he would we would send him six stories for the issue, uh, and quite often we would get back six illustrations by him for it, and they're all in markedly different styles, different uh, mediums, uh, the, or media, um, different techniques, all this sort of thing, because he was trying and building his craft and working at it. It was fascinating. Some of the most amazing things you'd get these sort of packages in at uh, the post office box sometimes. And there would be half a dozen Sean Tan original pieces of artwork. Um, and it was quite stunning, really, what he could do. So he, he was trying to find a style? He was trying to find an identity uh, at that point? Uh, I don't know that he was necessarily... I mean, the, the style was there. And the first time you could really, really see it, you know, sort of beyond everything, you know, beyond a doubt, was when um, The Rabbits came out, his first major picture book. Uh-huh. But... There was stuff in some of the predecessor work as well. But yeah, what he was doing was he was building his technique. He was trying things out. I, I guess if you're doing 20 or 30 illustrations a year for a magazine, it gives, and they're willing to give you, as we did, a free hand, then um, it gives you some freedom to kind of actually go, okay, well, I'll do this, I'll do that. And in fairness, I mean, because he was a very responsible art editor, he really did try to get a lot of other people to illustrate for us. So what would happen is he would work away at trying to get illustrations from people who never provided them because the deadline came and went. And then suddenly in a weekend, he'd do the whole magazine's worth. <clears throat> there they are. Because, just so, because we'd he, have to have... But he was reading the stories in the magazine? He was reading... Oh, yeah, yeah. The... Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Because the only, the only career I can think of that, and I, I know a lot of people, I know, for example, John Picaccio is a sure. guy who reads a lot. He's a smart guy. Uh, the, the, the template for that career might very well have been uh, Ed Emswiller. Yeah. Uh, who, who, who spent a lot of his early career, and I know this from having talked having talked to Carol uh, and having read what Carol's written about memoirs about him. It's a great book about Ed, Ed, Ed and Carol that uh, came out a couple of years ago. Um, you began learning how to do science fiction illustration for Astounding, and Ed Emshwiller was probably the leading illustrator in the 50s, certainly yeah. was the most ubiquitous illustrator in the 50s. And all that begins to build up and build up and build up. In his case, he moved to, to filmmaking and eventually to video. And, and made what still is very striking kinds of stuff, um, films like Relativity and so forth, which you can probably find on YouTube. Yeah. And, and eventually moved beyond the field and didn't have... You know, after, I would say, the late 1960s, M. Schuller had virtually nothing to do with the science fiction field. Um, ironically, Carol kept him connected to the field because she was still there. Uh, what I see with Sean is, and, and I just, he, he struck me as one of the sweetest people I've ever met. So he it's is. hard to, uh, uh, it's absolutely hard to distance this, is that he's somebody who, even with an Oscar, still kind of likes us. Oh, I, I don't think this will change him much at all. I really yeah. don't. Um, uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see him at a world fantasy convention at some point when he's got, got the spare time and, and can sort of go because he enjoyed it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I. I mean, we see him when he pops into town from time to time. And I admit, this time around, everybody wants to... I mean, you can imagine the, what it's going to be like. Everybody oh, wants yeah, to ask right. the same question. Right. What was it like? You went to the parties. You did the this, you know? I mean, I have to say, the one the one story I heard secondhand is in many ways the least Sean Tan-like thing, but I can just picture it. Apparently, he and his wife, Anari, uh, went to the Variety 
after party at the uh-huh. Oscars. And, of course, they're checking everybody judiciously. You're looking at all their IDs to let them in. And apparently Sean's in the back of this car that sort of comes up to the gate and just leads <laughs> his arm out the, uh, out the window, waves the Oscar out the window, and they just let him in. And, I'm th- I'm th- and in some ways, the it's least... It's a great Sean, story. It is. It's Absolutely great. It's a great story. And, you know, his, no, I, I, and, I, I think he's... Yeah. Go ahead. But no, I just yeah, I do. Th- I just think it, it 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 was one of those things that defined community a little bit in terms of how everybody responded to him, and and the announcement. Well, I guess that's the sense I had, uh, and it may be a very fanish kind of sense, and I don't yeah. mind being fanish occasionally. No, is that this is the first Oscar that somebody recognizably in our field, uh, apart from the fact that I've met him and talked to him and like him a lot, yeah. uh, has has won. I mean, Clark didn't get one. Kubrick didn't get one. 2001 didn't, didn't even get nominated. I think. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think ordinary people won that year, which yeah. nobody even watches anymore. Yes. Um, there are people. Um, I met Ray Harryhausen once, and I think he may have won an Oscar once for special effects back in the 50s. Um, but that, that that's historical. That's that's where you meet yeah. old guys who've been around. The notion that this field can somehow connect with the Oscars um, is, is is interesting. The one thing that I think, uh, it's interesting, after Sean has won this, and admittedly it's in what most people think of as a minor category, uh, although you can see the film online, uh, everybody should know that it's IndieFilms.com or something, Um, there's a sense that maybe this is a breakthrough. Maybe there's a sense that people who are really connected to our field will be connected to Hollywood. My my guess is the next shot at something like this is going to be Guillermo... Del Toro. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about him uh, last week or week before last, who wants yeah. to do that, The Mountains of Madness. Yes. And he is he's a stone fan. He reads the stuff. He understands the stuff. He loves the stuff. And he's a good enough filmmaker that he's going to, at some point in his career, come up for an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, I'm sure you're right. And probably on that note, you know what we should do, Gary? We should probably end what are we looking at now an yeah, hour and a half we're about or an hour or so on, on what I, I have to say is one of the more rambly podcasts I, I, I like last week we got ourselves focused this one's kind of a bit all over the shop but hey this is what happens i hope that everybody enjoyed it i hope that it was fine i don't know if there's anything else we need to touch on before we run away till to next time but um well, let's give people a preview of next week. I mean, if, if I'm not – in a couple of weeks from now, I'm going to be in Florida at ICFA, and we'll see who I can line up there. Sure, sure. Uh, but one, one of the things you intrigued me about, and we can talk about next week on our own, is this business of just picking up a, an author at random and starting to reread somebody or read somebody. Okay. <laughs> Maybe show who. It was your idea, and you'll have to explain what it is, but it's, yes. it's, I find it very intriguing. Yes. Well, it, yes. Well, well I mean, I, I was going to talk more in, uh, in depth last week about Peter Beagle, even though I, you know, I seem to sort of actually just make the shamefaced admission that I hadn't read The Last Unicorn. But um, I think we definitely can. I think there's lot, lot, lots, to, lots to talk about. We need to sort of build up what we're going to do as we do the run-up to the 50th podcast. We are working to the 50th podcast. We should ask our listeners, both of them, uh, <laughs> what they would like to hear. Now, that's not true. Like there, are, there are not true. You know, there's not true. Okay. about it. Because Paul Cornell is on his treadmill. Hi, Paul. Uh, Hi, Paul. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Ford is in the wilds of New, New Jersey. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Driving to your teaching job, I'm sure. Well, I think it's late at night he listens, though I do remember him saying when we were in World Fantasy that he was going to move to somewhere like Phoenix or somewhere. So anyway, but anyway. And of course, we, we, know, we know Cheryl is probably, as she listens to this, hi Cheryl, uh, in, uh, in in the UK, uh, sort of having breakfast on a Sunday morning or something. So hi Cheryl. So we've got at least five. Hi five. Paul Cornell occasionally is, is, is working out and uh, doing his treadmill or That's whatever right. or running. Yeah, yeah. So everybody's out there and they've probably just plowed through this. Slightly disorganized podcast. Is it ever, and, yeah. ever bother the people listening to this podcast are brighter than we are? Oh, they're, oh don't do that. Do not do that. Uh, for a start, I mean, yes, absolutely they're brighter than we are. Don't be ridiculous. And second of all, I'm going out to dinner tonight, right? This weekend is the Perth Writers Festival. So I'm going out with James Bradley, who's an Australian uh, writer and editor, uh, Margot Lanigan, mm-hmm. uh, Lev Grossman, and I believe his wife, uh, Sophie G., and there's myself and Marianne, a couple other people. Everybody else at the table smarter than me, Gary. 
Oh, you can fake it. You're good at that. You're besides which you're an anthologist, which means you have power over them. Oh, power over them. I just had just had one of my former editors tell me that um, she. Uh, the, the, I'm sorry. I, I I took the phone out of the room, but I didn't take the base station. Uh, I didn't realize it was what rang. Damn, it's a new phone. Sorry, I apologize, everybody. But ser- quite seriously, I'm not kidding you even a little bit. Um, just this morning, I got a thing saying, well, anthologies are a really tough sell now. So maybe you won't even hear from me much for a couple of years as the, the book market has to recover because it's in such a desperate, desperate state. We should talk about that next week because I'm yeah. not convinced. The book market may be – the book marketing market may be in a desperate state. Yeah. I still believe there are people who want their favorite writers – to produce books, and I think there are writers who want decent editors and oh, publishers yeah. to vet their books. I'm sure that's uh, true. The mechanism for that is another question altogether, but that's that's a good topic. I mean, I was, yeah. I was thinking, uh, and, and for everybody who wants to go to, uh, we should give another plug to Locus. Everybody wants to go to uh, subscribe to Locus, and you can do it online right yep. now. Because the reason I mention that is because uh, my review of Margot's book, I think, is in the new Locus. It is right? Yellow Cake, yes, which isn't going to come uh, out in the U- U.S. until next year. I own magazine, and if Margot's book comes out in Australia sure. now, uh, people should know about it. And she also told us over told us over lunch, Gary. She told us that uh, the Selkie novel has been delayed till next year as well, everywhere. And the the you current what? yeah that makes me as a world fantasy judge feel way more rationalized in giving a chunk of that novel to world fantasy. Award sure. Absolutely. And, and also there's a, she tells us that there's a possibility it will have not one, not two, but three different titles. Oh, good. Maybe she can run a Twitter contest or something. Well, all, all the right. So far, the publishers haven't been able to agree on a single title. So it'll either be called what the brides of roll rock Island watered silk or, the other title that she mentioned, so, or possibly something else altogether again. Anyway, oh, on that happy okay, cheery well, note, let's now. wind this one up, and uh, I will talk let's to you next next weekend. And we'll okay, see you we'll back on the podcast. Okay, take care. All right. Okay, bye. bye.